now I try to be. So welcome to another episode of PhD Divas. I'm Dr. Zainia representing the humanities and I'm recording on site at the 2017 American Studies Association Conference. And I'm here with a very special guest today, Dr. Bridget Fielder. Hello. So we were thinking that like, um, I'm really happy to bring uh, Bridget to the podcast and we'll be talking a bit about our work and we'll also be talking a little bit about the, the conference as well. So Bridget, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, okay. Um, I'm an assistant professor part of literature department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, I am currently on a Nellie Y. McKay Fellowship um, on leave for the year, and I'm finishing up a manuscript on uh, a book about queer discourses of interracial kinship in the long 19th century, in 19th century American literatures. Uh, I'm interested in ways that racialization happens through genealogies that uh, don't follow heteronormative notions of transfer from parents to children, but where race can be transferred across lines of sexual kinship, backwards from children to parents, um, through non-heteronormative matrilineal lines of inheritance, Mm. lines that ignore some kin while prioritizing the racialization of others, the re-racialization of uh, different generations in passing and anti-passing narratives. So that's the book I'm working on. And I have another project in the works on um, inter- interrelated uh, discourses of race and species in the long 19th century, human-animal relationships and the racialization of uh, human-animal relationships. That's so, that's really exciting. And of course, like, there's so much, I think, work being done right now in terms of like thinking about adoption. And it seems like your work is really coming at a new angle and thinking like uh, much more broadly about how race plays into like these non, uh, non-biological non um, kinship structures. And I because I remember that one way that you translated your work for a wider audi- audience was the piece that you did in response to Rachel Dole's all number of years ago. Like, mm-hmm. how did that, how does your work inform like some of these, these moments of of trying to think of new ways of racialization in ways that are very troubling. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, I, I'm interested in uh, a theory of racialization that still builds on you know notions of you know race as constructed and the, the kind of cultural work that race does, but the ways that we talk about race are still very much embedded in biological, genealogical. Uh, now with discourses of DNA. Mm-hmm. And even ways of thinking that look very old. They're, 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 they're very old ways of talking about race that still perpetuate themselves, even though we have um, kind of social constructionist ideas of how race works. And so I'm interested in the complexities of racialization in the U.S. and especially in the stories that we tell about how race works. Oh. in the U.S. through notions of hypodescent, the one-drop rule by which um, mixed-race people, for example, identify with mm-hmm. usually the oppressed um, portion of their imagined racialized mm-hmm. you know, quantification, um, and that that doesn't have to do with the quantification of race so much as you know other notions of like embodiment and visibility and, and identification and presence, but also legal structures and as I'm uh, interested in this book, structures of racial relation. And so how race is formed in the spaces between people who are related to one another, not necessarily biologically, Mm -hmm. um, but in familial structures that uh, aren't necessarily about blood um, or the the kind of racial inheritances that we associate with something like blood quantum, uh, but that are familial and uh, and that you know our constructions, but also very much inform the way race works are are you know in, in American history really and, and still today. And so I guess like this might be a good part to to step back since of course um, our listeners are not all in the humanities or necessarily even work all on race because I feel like on, on our podcast of course um, Liz and I are both women of color and we we talk a lot about race in the present moment. But if we could zoom back for a moment and as you're saying that the way that we have thought about race has changed very much. Do you want to sort of um, give like an overview of the history? Like how has race been constructed? And especially since we're people work on early 19th, how does that translate till now? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, theories of of racial formation from the 20th century 
onward have often, um, you know, acknowledged race as a social construct. Mm -hmm. Um, Race is not a real biological thing. Phenotypical difference does not translate into uh, differences in DNA necessarily. And and we know that our concepts of race are ideological. Mm -hmm. Um, And historically, theories of what race is uh, have prioritized like race as a biological category um enlightenment era uh, scientific racism Mm -hmm. has informed much of uh, the discourse around race in the united states and other parts of the americas especially in the slaveholding world and um you know ideas of different races of people as belonging to different species um ideas of different races of people as having some kind of uh, inherent essential mm-hmm. um, biological difference that that impacts like you know in, um, uh, intellectual capability physical capability um, ability to be incorporated into the nation mm-hmm. uh, you know that kind of thing have really dominated um, I think uh, how race has worked in US legal structures and um, US culture for the entirety of uh, the history of this place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the things that I'm interested in in the 19th century still very much have resonance for us in the present, you know. Uh, and I'm interested in kind of rethinking uh, notions of racial formation to move beyond uh, individual embodiment and even self-identification um, to notions of racial relation. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the book project that I'm working on is called Relative Races mm-hmm. um, and is invested in how race is relative to other people in its construction, mm-hmm. uh, but also uh, how we construct race in, in terms of uh, relation uh, via kinship structures. Mm-hmm. And so how people are racialized is sometimes uh, a, a matter of phenotype and physical embodiment in the world, but sometimes it's uh, a relation of association and uh, associations of kinship that then, uh, you know, suggest notions of racial belonging Mm -hmm. that are actually not static, but um, sometimes uh, can be permeable and uh, and really illustrate in, in many ways the kind of uh, precarious nature of whiteness, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, as a category would in you, those racialized structures. Yeah, I was going to say, would you like to give some specific examples of things that you work on, like in terms of like either literature or particular like historical examples? Of... Yeah. So I have a piece um, uh, forthcoming in in theater annual that's uh, based on the first chapter of this book project called Blackface Desdemona, and I read nineteenth century U.S minstrel adaptations of Othello Mm -hmm. in which um, characters other than Othello are performed in blackface. So, really? That's so, um, um, so for people who don't remember, there are Shakespeare as well, of course. Othello is the quote-unquote more of the work, but he's otherwise in a, a white society. Yeah, so um, uh, in, in the United States, uh, Othello has historically been played by a white man in blackface uh-huh. um, until uh, Paul Robeson's groundbreaking performance in uh, uh, the early 20th century. For this, while there were uh, actors like uh, Ira Aldridge who played Othello in Europe, there were not integrated productions of Othello in which a black man played Othello among other white characters uh-huh. um, in the 19th century. So Othello's played in blackface. This this uh, is, you know, going to be a pretty common uh, performance that you've seen Laurence Olivier's yeah, uh, very famously. completely unwatchable Othello. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, up until very recently in the 21st century, Othello uh, in opera has been, mm-hmm. uh, you know, played by white actors Mm-hmm. In, in oftentimes in some kind of brown face. And so yeah, opera's um, really notorious for that. Yeah, and so so those are just very recent developments mm-hmm. of uh, you know, different opera companies like actually stopping doing that very very depressingly recently. But um in this in this history of performing Othello um in blackface on the American stage, one of the things that uh theatergoers report is what some people have called like the inconvenience of blackface makeup. It rubs off onto other things, including Desdemona. Interesting. And okay. so um, theater 
goers uh, of various kinds write these reports of uh, like either playing Desdemona opposite a blackface Othello or watching Desdemona become actually begrimed in black as mine own face mm. in this final scene of her murder um, uh, over or over the course of the play as the characters touch one another. So blackface is transferable. And so I'm interested in this, what I would say, an urtext for um, interracial kinship in American culture mm-hmm. um, as um, a metaphor for uh, the imagined dangers of racist transferability. So um, there's also a history of burlesque performances of uh, various Shakespeare plays, both in uh, Britain and in the United States. And in the United States, burlesques translated uh, you know, pretty quickly, I think, into the American minstrel tradition. Mm-hmm, and so people mm-hmm. would do blackface minstrel productions of Othello um, burlesques and so all the characters use blackface, ones. not just Othello? Is well, that it, or? they would vary. Uh-huh. So, you know, in some, like T.D. Rice's, it seems that, you know, there's an Othello, uh, Othello's in blackface, but Desdemona's, um, you know, played by a, a white woman. But um, Rice does something interesting in giving Othello and Desdemona a child. Oh, okay. um, Which is a, a move that I think answers a, a, a question that Shakespeare scholars tend to ask about this play that um, they're very invested in, and that I think white racist Americans are really invested in is like, did they have sex? Mm. Did they have time to have sex between this scene and that scene? Did they ever consummate this marriage before he has to go off? And (laughs) T.D. Rice gives them this child Uh to be like, they did this. They did it. Um, Uh And the child has no purpose in the play. He doesn't have any lines. He doesn't do anything. Um, He's listed in the acting edition and he's listed in some of the playbills and he's proof of sex. But he is also described as having um, the line of blackface makeup on his body. So like, so like a um, binary, like literally one side of his seems, face is black. Yeah, so it seems wow. that he is he's half black and half white to denote his parentage in that. Very subtle. Um, and so <laughs> and so I think this is a, a kind of um, segue to you know thinking about characters other other than Othello in blackface. What does it mean for half black um, young Othello? The character is called. Um, uh, or it's a Tello in Rice's version, uh, ha- like do for Desdemona, who is on stage, and you know the implication of her pregnancy and her embodiment of this uh, differently racialized other mm-hmm. um, in pregnancy is suggested, I think, by the presence of this child um, who just accompanies Desdemona and doesn't do anything other than be. Um, in other minstrel performances, there's some there's evidence of uh, different characters like blackface wench characters playing even the role of Desdemona. And so okay. um, uh, I read one one minstrel show that follows a tradition of uh, having different kind of white ethnics performed uh, in the blackface stage, something that Eric Watt writes about, um, mm-hmm. where you have like Iago is, has, um, is like speech is coded as Irish. He like um, uh, uh, drops his G's and, and things or whatever. Interesting. Um, and so uh, there are, you know, different different ways of portraying race in in in, in this menstrual tradition that are really really complex. Um, and I'm interested in these blackface Desdemonas. What it means to think about Desdemona in some of these menstrual plays um, performed uh, in blackface and in drag by um, you know one of these white male black uh, 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 minstrel mm-hmm. actors. Um, and there's a, um, a Griffin and Christie's uh, Othello show that, that that has that kind of casting. And so I'm interested in thinking about what to do with Desdemona, who is arriving on the scene already begrimed in black as mine own face, and what this says about the way race works in this uh, national imaginary in which race is transferred from black men who have race to white women who receive it, mm-hmm. um, you know, via semen and in the embodiment of uh, differently racialized children. Um, and what does that say about sexuality, gender, um, uh, whiteness, and, and, and the kind of, uh, you know, precarity of these, uh, you know, racialized categories. And so I, I use this, uh, you know, discussion of Othello and, and, and Desdemona to talk about what I'm calling queer genealogies of racialization, in which race isn't transferred from parents to children, mm-hmm. but um, can be transferred in what I'm calling sexual kinship relations mm-hmm. or um, relations uh, in which a child might re-racialize their mother um, by virtue of, of evoking um, this embodiment of the racialized other or the receiving of race, um, you know, via heterosexual sex. And that that 
theory of racialization is not heteronormative in that it doesn't actually follow the ways mm-hmm. we think about genealogical transfer um, you know, happening in this kind of linear, top-down fashion. And so the project reads, um, kind of starts with this urtext and reads other texts in which race is working in these queer, genealogy, queer genealogies of interracial kinship, um, sometimes in sexual kinship, sometimes in a kind of reflective kinship from children to parents, sometimes in matrilineal inheritances by which um, uh, hypodescent, uh, the one-drop rule, mm-hmm. um, erases certain racial genealogies while highlighting others. And, and I'm interested in, in you know, what, what this means for kind of rethinking racial formation along these relational lines. Mm-hmm. I was also just sort of curious, since I'm sure that our, our listeners not necessarily being in the field of literature are so used to thinking of Shakespeare as a purely English phenomenon, but obviously there's, a, there's very real ways that it transforms materially, structurally, when brought to the U.S. How did American audiences receive Othello as a tragedy, as a heroic mm-hmm. figure? Like, how does... How did the particular circumstances of American anti-blackness like um, inform inform them? Because I guess I'm so used to thinking of minstrel shows as being inherently like usually comedic, mm-hmm. and so what did it mean to translate like the tragedy of Othello into a minstrel show? And like, how did people um, did Americans perceive Othello as the hero or the protagonist differently, especially given like, of course, the the specter of um, sexual violence that. Uh, informs uh, racist lynching like at the time yeah um you know there's much less um discussion of minstrel shows and in terms of like theater history Mm -hmm. um but i think these these minstrel the the plays themselves um which i'm reading just in these acting editions Mm -hmm. are a kind of theorization of the plays themselves. Okay, so and they're so, struggling with yeah, it. Yeah, so, so yeah, so one thing uh, we know about regular Othello when it's performed not in this minstrel burlesque form is that there's actually a disagreement, especially in the antebellum period, about how black Othello was, and oh, so okay. he's played at various degrees of blackness or tawniness, as it's called, mm-hmm. and how black Othello is is a matter of debate among 19th century Shakespeare. Um, people who are writing about Shakespeare. Is that the way they tried um, to like save, so to speak, a Shakespeare character from race? Is that well, I, I mean, like Yeah, I think um, there there's there's this debate uh, about whether he should be played in uh, it you know, he's he's played in blackface pretty yeah. much, I, I I think overwhelmingly, but like less so in the American South. He's played in tiny face or not blackface at all sometimes. Interesting. Um, okay. In some of the acting editions of Othello, uh, explicit lines about sex are taken out. So no beast with two backs, no tupping your white you. Mm. The very racialized sexual uh, sexual language is removed from um, you know some of these uh, editions um, uh-huh. uh, of performance. In 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 the the practice of playing Othello in blackface, uh, I think the um, imagined threat of black sexuality, black hypersexuality is imagined to be mitigated by not having a real live black man perform mm-hmm. on this stage. Uh, there was much ado at, um, you know, Paul Robeson's, you know, kissing a white actress mm-hmm. in the, you know, um, in, uh, in, in his performance. And so, um, like, well, it's, you know, this isn't really happening. We're just putting on the show. Mm-hmm. I think there's an imagined safety of, like, not, you know, showing this. And so, uh, but, but overwhelmingly in the United States, Othello is read. Um, I think, as uh, a kind of anti-miscegenation play. Oh, that makes sense. And yeah. so um, you have people writing about Shakespeare, um, like John Quincy Adams, mm-hmm. former president of the United States, is an amateur like Shakespeare enthusiast and writes about um, different characters and about Desdemona. He's very critical. Um, she's not uh, a person who experiences true love like Juliet and Miranda, like but he says that um, you know she is a traitor to her race and her nation. Wow! And when she dies in her bed, we have the feeling that she has her just desserts, um, something very much wow. like that. Okay. Um, and so, so, so reading Desdemona's death as punishment for interracial sex is very American. Yes. I, 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 I think Othello is a very American play. People have written about the resonance of Othello in American, uh, you know. Uh, in in larger popular culture, um, you know, it's it's it, it's pretty evident. Evident, you can, uh, you know, see this in, um, you know, like twentieth and twenty first century, uh, you know, um, you know, popular culture too. But but in the nineteenth century, uh, I think 
you know, the through these productions of cello are very American and that they're working out very American, um, uh, you know, thoughts about race, mm-hmm. um, you know, through these productions. And so that, so that's what I'm, what I'm interested in. And I think there's a way that that, um, becomes a kind of hyper visible image of interracial kinship that like problematically eclipses others mm-hmm. that, um, mm-hmm. you know, is going to lead right on into, you know, uh, the kind of pretense of, um, you know, black male hypersexuality and, and the need to protect white women. And, you know, all of this is, you know, part of that, uh, that, that larger culture. Yeah. And I guess like, um, also then thinking about the, the phenomenon of blackface even today, and like, that seems to be this reoccurring trope almost at, um, at every other campus that, you know, there'll be a, some horrible party where blackface is going to happen. And, but as, as you're talking about, there's sort of this fear of the transference of blackface and a, a racialization. Do you see those fears? Also, uh, do those fears also sort of attend um, the recurrence of blackface? Well, I mean, that I think is also very old. And, you know, like, you know, Eric Lotz Love and Theft talks mm-hmm. about like putting on blackface as like a kind of white masculinity that mm-hmm. um, is involved in appropriation as well as denigration and uh i mean i think that like the um the perpetuation of blackface culture um and other forms of almost ironically anti-black appropriation of blackness Mm -hmm. um are rooted in that culture in in ways that make i think you know pretty clear sense in in a long history of uh of you know thinking about racial representation in the Mm -hmm. u.s so to, to shift gears uh, away from your research, so um, Bridget is uh, in Wisconsin right now, and so I think that a, a topic that probably a lot of our listeners are affected uh, by right now is, of course, the, the way that higher education in the U.S., of course, is being embattled in Wisconsin, being one of those places in particular because of the, um, because of your particular governor. Would you like to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about like the politics of like being new faculty in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and like what have you been seeing on the ground? What has it been like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's, you know, I, I, I got to Wisconsin in 2012 um, with my partner and um, we, you know, have always been there and when the university was in this kind of state of emergency and so we haven't really seen it, you know, not in that state. Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit unplugged from it um, at the moment because I've been away in, for research and, and such and on leave, but, you know, it's very disconcerting for uh, especially, you know, some of the smaller campuses um, that are having programs cut Mm -hmm. um, and that might consolidate with, uh, you know, other schools. Uh, I mean, I think for a lot of us, it's very unclear what's going to happen, you know, and, and, and I think it's very difficult to keep up with um, you know, changes that are not made through faculty governance that are, um, that the future is very unclear, um, you know, for, uh, for the UW system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's very concerning. People at UW-Madison have been sheltered from certain kinds of things being at the big, uh, you know, flagship school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we're not as affected as many of the smaller campuses have been. Um, and, and I have friends who work at, at, at some of the smaller UW campuses. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I recognize that their experience with this is, um, you know, I think, I think different than mine with regard to, you know, their feelings of, of being precarious in that system. You know, it's, it's also a, a difficult culture for junior faculty who are overwhelmingly encouraged not to speak about anything um, because uh, we will be punished. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, I've been chastised for that a lot too. Um, but those of us without tenure, um, you know, know that we are precarious as well and trying to figure out how to affect good change in, you know, from our roles of, mm-hmm. um, you know, relative on power, <laughs> always, always a difficult task. And, um, you know, and for many of us and especially for many scholars of color who I know, um, many first-generation faculty uh, members, um, you know, are are trying to figure out how to, you know, how to mentor students under these conditions that have also involved, um, you know, graduate students who uh, have, you know, who, who I think don't have the economic resources that they should have 
in in uh, in, in our system. Uh, you know, undergraduates, um, especially undergraduates of color, at a predominantly white place, uh, in which um, you know there are, uh, I think, in, in you know, pretty some pretty public, uh, you know, incidents of racism on camp on our campuses that um, you know then students have responded to um, in clear ways that um, you know the university then uh, I think is you know responding to student demands mm-hmm. um, in ways that are frankly historical um, you know institutions have responded uh, to student demands in in moments of uh, you know big issues of like uh, race and racism on, on college campuses yeah you know, that's that's always been been true mm-hmm. and so uh, I think you know this is just another instance of that and so um, so figuring out how to mentor our students how to you know listen to their voices and help to amplify them and to you know figure out what the best avenues are for change and and, and that you know there's more than enough work to be done on any number of fronts yeah uh, you know at, at our institutions that you know trying to figure out what piece of that work you can do is is you know I think you know really important and uh, I've been trying to think about that a lot in terms of uh, being more transparent about um, anti-racist pedagogical practices mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. promoting explicitly anti-racist pedagogical practices um, in you know my own uh, classroom um, and you know in our larger field of, mm-hmm. of, of study um, to have those conversations when we talk about pedagogy I think is very important. Uh, someone once told me I should not uh, think so much about race when thinking about pedagogy. What? Okay. Um, uh, um, okay. And uh, that is the state of pedagogical instruction in um, U.S. white-serving, historically white, predominantly white institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, as somebody who teaches African-American literature in the 19th century... Yeah, like, like uh, race like, might come up, right? Who's like, mm-hmm. off, you know, oftentimes, like, you know, the first black women professor my students have had, mm-hmm. um, some of whom, you know, don't, don't meet people of color until they come to college. Mm-hmm. I cannot do my job without attending to race in my classroom. Yes. And that includes int- attending to race in the material that I'm teaching, mm-hmm. um, including racism in the material material that I'm teaching, not conflating those things. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think also attending to, um, you know, the racial embodiment that, um, in, you know, the members of our uh, intellectual communities have uh-huh. in trying to talk openly about, um, you know, what that means for, um, you know, our study of, uh, you know, these, 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 these things. And I think, you know, like literature gives us a lot of good ways to start to open up those conversations that are, um, really, uh, really relevant for twentieth, twenty first century discourses, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, of race, and and so, um, you know, so I'm fortunate that 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 can you know kind of meld into our teaching, um, and I'm also have been interested in, um, and I've done this more in my less at my institution, um, uh, where I have a different kind of precariousness mm-hmm. uh, than I have in our larger field where I am. Uh, is a very welcoming to junior scholars mm-hmm. um, in general um, and at you know other institutions that I've uh, been affiliated with or that I've not been affiliated with is um, attending to anti-racist practices of colleagueship. Yes and, and I have to say that this is something that I've been really grateful to Bridget for like so we both went to Cornell together and Bridget was uh, a number of years ahead of me but she has always been an amazing mentor and it's been it's meant a lot to me to have like a friend and mentor who's also a woman of color in our field that I think our field again is really great at um, bringing in junior scholars and great about talking about issues of race, but overwhelmingly body like people in the room doing the profession is still, it's still an overwhelmingly white place. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, the um, like, because our field has been, uh, you know, has, I think a number of, white colleagues who are, you know, not only academic, not only anti-racist allies, but anti-racist accomplices (laughs) and, and who Mm -hmm. can, you know, and who, who actually have done, I think really good work to support me as a junior woman of color in the field since I was in graduate school 
even. Um, I have a sense that like it, it could be better. But this could, like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we can do this very well. Um, it's it's just a matter of more people taking up anti-racist work and doing so uh, not passively but actively. And and I think having more transparent conversations mm-hmm. about how to do that is really important because I think there are um, you know more well-meaning people than not who lack the tools to be as effective as they could be as anti-racist colleagues who will um, help scholars of color to not only survive but thrive mm-hmm. and um, uh, become fully incorporated members of a field that will then benefit um, you know our students in, in, in various ways that um, because because we don't talk about this pedagogically yeah. um, because this is not part of our training um, this is not part of um, like the structure of our graduate student training and those of us who do have that kind of training um, have it I, I think by luck of the draw with regard to like particular advisors who yes. did this very well but it's not built into the structure of graduate programs or instructions in pedagogy mm-hmm. or um, you know uh, faculty development um, and so so thinking about um, you know like like how to think about faculty development as you know anti-racist colleagueship and how to think about pedagogical practices um, and like anti-racist pedagogical practices not only in the classroom but outside the classroom as well mm-hmm. um, has you know been a kind of accompaniment to the work on old things and dead people <laughs> that I do um, you know, and 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 that I've been invested in uh, in you know in in some ways in, in a selfish way to like make this world palatable to me um, and to create conditions in which um, you know scholars of color, who are younger than I am have a better experience of mm-hmm. uh, our field and uh, and academia, and that our students of color can have you know different experiences, um, you know at uh, even predominantly white institutions. Yeah. Uh, that that I, I think uh, it's it's really necessary work, and um, and more people need to take it up, and it cannot just be scholars of color. Yes. It has to be. Um, white scholars and and so to to get to a place where white academics are doing more work than scholars of color on Mm -hmm. creating anti-racist campuses I think would be a really great goal um, because numerically um, they outnumber scholars Mm -hmm. of colors but scholars of color and students of color who are not getting paid to do this work um, but who are doing this work as a matter of trying to, you know, facilitate their own education and yeah, advocate survival. themselves, yeah. um, are doing the vast, vast, vast majority of our of this work. And and when we don't do that, when white scholars don't do that work, uh, when there aren't enough faculty members of color to do all of the things, and there are faculty members of color to try, you know, doing extremely good work, but like, um, you know, every you know numerically people cannot do all of the things this falls to students of color Mm -hmm. um and and that is doing them a disservice that is uh you know refusing to um you know offer them the kind of education that their white peers are getting and so i think like we have obligations to at different um you know structural levels try to address these things and so um so those are my like couple of places that I've tried to think about and just really trying to get other people to talk to me about mm-hmm. what are your strategies for doing these things. And I want to, I want us to have those conversations about things that we are trying individually, that we're doing on our own, that we're thinking about, that we're struggling with, that we're trying to work out because I think oftentimes we don't have those conversations mm-hmm. or we have those conversations in these private ways yeah. Um, that aren't um, embedded into our field. And so it's hard, you know, so they're not getting to everybody. Um, and so I want I want those those conversations to involve more people. Yeah. And so uh, at the ASA, where we are right now, the, the theme this year is ped- pedagogies of dissent. And so I wanted to ask some sort of uh, 
very specific questions about what sort of pedagogical strategies that you use, because I feel like some of the perennial questions that tend to come up when people know that we work on like uh, the things before the 20th century about race is like, how do you deal with, say, like racial slurs in the text or out, out, outmoded language? And also like the, I feel like the usual sometimes student response is like, oh, well, they're racist. They're just, you know, a product of their times is usually the phrase that a lot of people turn to. And so how do you how do you deal with these questions in the classroom? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, to to understand racist people in the 19th century as a product of their time is to misunderstand the 19th century and, and, mm-hmm. um, and you know, in early America in a, in a, in a big way. Um, uh, you know, America is historically hella racist, <laughs> so let's not, you know, you know pretend this. But... Um, but there have always been, um, you know, anti-racist people doing anti-racist work. Mm-hmm. And when we, you know, absolve people um, on the basis of history or the prevalence of racism, um, it's also to ignore anti-racist work and to prioritize racist positions. And so I think a lot of what anti-racist work needs to do is to stop prioritizing anti-racist positions. Um, and so when we you know, make that, you know, like, well, it was just really racist back then. What can you do? Um, we're prioritizing a racist position mm-hmm. over all um, positions. And oftentimes that gets com- like that gets, you know, mis- misread too um, into like prioritizing whiteness. Um, it's not just prioritizing whiteness. It's prioritizing racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and to know that that's what we're doing, I think, and to speak that is 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 important. And so, um, you know, like thinking about how we can, you know, de- deprioritize racist positions, um, you know, like acknowledge that racism is not an acceptable position that mm-hmm. we are going to, um, you know, take in t- into consideration um, just as we like, like that, you know, that, that uh, people of different races are, you know, are not, um, you know, inherently, you know, you know ir- inferior mm-hmm. to white people. Um, is an academic untruth, yes. Like uh, other academic untruths, um, uh, like you know, um, yeah, like you know, like two plus two does not equal thirty six, <laughs> um, and and we need to call out those on un- those untruths, um, mm-hmm. you know, in in our classroom, and um, and and there are I you know, um, a lot of racist material in our field, yes, with which one must contend, um. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's also a lot of interesting anti-racist work at various mm-hmm. positions on a spectrum of anti-racism, um, that, that scholars have long acknowledged mm-hmm. and that, um, you know, that, that, that we need to recognize in, in this, uh, larger scheme in order to do justice to these problems that we're dealing with that are not, you know, new problems in, in any way. Mm-hmm. I guess um, so to zoom out um, as a as a concluding part of our interview, I sort of I was wondering what has the trajectory been like to be a, a new professor? Since of course you're like um, you're a junior faculty now, but of course you're um, ahead of me in terms of your career. And one thing I've, I've been struggling very personally is like now that I finally managed to go over the the hurdle of graduation of getting dissertation. What next? Like, how did you transition from that moment of graduation, like personally and professionally? How did you try to make new goals for yourself? Like now that we don't have like formal mentors or like and the way that it seemed like the structure support for people after graduation varies so wildly. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you have you how you found um, your own place and how have you sort of created your your trajectory? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think, you know, very much like. A kind of model that that uh, benefited me in graduate school was, you know, the kind of advice I give graduate students is like find your people, mm-hmm. and you know, find your people in your field, your people, um, you know, as like colleagues and mentors and friends, and build the networks that will help you to thrive. and And I think thinking about mentorship in 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 its formal ways does a disservice to the kinds. Uh, the various kinds of mentorship that have most benefited me mm-hmm. in my career. And so I've had a, a, a real, real luck in having excellent mentors at my institution. I have a PhD institution at Cornell, 
at in my field, um, you know, uh, elsewhere of, you know, other senior scholars who have been mentors to me since uh, uh, graduate school and, and even more recently in various ways. Um, um, I have some good mentors at my institution, uh, both inside and outside mm-hmm. my department, you know, who have been very, very useful. But the unspoken, uh, I think, work that um, peers and friends do for one another mm-hmm. is, is I think, really interesting. And I've, I've tried to talk a bit about um, the kind of overlap of peers and mentors um, that uh, people just a little bit ahead of you mm-hmm. can be useful for. And, and um, in our larger graduate student, graduate student pool during the time that uh, I was there and when you were there too, there was a kind of series of people working in our field yeah. who were in community with one another and who I think passed knowledge down in ways that were um, not across a huge divide. I mean, you know, uh, like I was not several years ahead of Zion. I was like a couple, (laughs) a few years ahead of Zion, right? But like, you know, people just a couple years ahead of me in their graduate careers have been immensely helpful for learning how to do the next thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you know, looking to not, you know, necessarily people who are, you know, um, you know, full and, you know, emeritus professors or something to figure out how to do what I need to do and looking to people who like literally just did the thing that I need to do next has been, uh, I think a way that a a lot of, you know, I, I I think that the people out of our graduate program have kind of crafted their ways of like, um, knowledge sharing. And I think a lot of that came out of people not having anybody immediately above them mm-hmm. um, and seeing that gap between them and their advisors, you know, as an absence and thinking about um, how they can pass down knowledge, but especially about things like the questions that you don't know enough to ask, um, exactly. which yeah. is especially useful for first generation college students and for graduate students who are not the children of professors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, knowing what you didn't know or knowing what uh, you didn't know, know to ask um, and making information available to uh, people, um, you know, and is is important. We, we lack certain structural ways of um, professionalization, mm-hmm. I think, at various levels in, mm-hmm. in, in academia. And this is one where, you know, the, the kind of structures of how mentorship happens are insufficient. They're necessary, but insufficient for, uh, I think, you know, success. And so, uh, you know, recognizing that um, academic work is not individual, but collaborative. Mm-hmm. People work best in conversation with one another. If you read the acknowledgement sections for books and try to map the relations between oh, yes. um, mm-hmm. people who are being thanked and, you know, how how they relate to each other in this kind of larger schema, I think some of that becomes more apparent how that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, but but trying to make make those connections um, in e- even like incremental levels of of like uh, even among, among junior faculty right? Mm-hmm. Junior faculty who are like in a couple of years, uh, you know, difference from one another can, you know, can benefit from that kind of knowledge transfer. And oftentimes this is unacknowledged labor. Yes. And mm-hmm. it is not labor that, um, you know, can be listed on a CV. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult to expect people to extract that labor, um, you know, from, from, from one another mm-hmm. because it goes unregistered. Um, and so it's, in my experience, been done out of a culture of generosity mm-hmm. and paying it forward. Um, and so, you know, trying, trying to like both give and, and take. And so for me, like the revelation that I was like in a, in a position to do mentorship is like, it, it, it's, it's odd to me to think about, uh, you know, um, about that as in, from my position of lowly untenured. See, that's um, so funny. Cause it's, I feel like um, I'm looking up at you and be like, Oh, look at, look up to Bridget. And, and I'm like, what is she thinking about? <laughs> Who appears? Why am I in this thing? Uh, and so, but I, but I think it's part of this, just like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, just this, like looking slightly ahead. Yeah. Slightly like something behind. that's more lateral as opposed to just, um, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And then, and the differences are, are, are slight. Um, but can have, you know, uh, I think I think that kind of 
peer mentorship um, can have generational mm-hmm. um, impl- uh, like results in you know in, in, in thinking about um, you know how how scholarship happens and how support for scholarship mm-hmm. and you know other kinds of work in the world happens um, and I think we can see traces of this in in if we look at something like institutional privilege yes. and like oh you know like these people all went to grad school together and this is a you know uh, why why this is this way um, but but I think like trying to build that in generous ways is something that I see actually modeled fairly well in our field. Mm-hmm. Um, like excellent, you know, like, like some, some very generous scholars who um, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I benefit greatly from who mm-hmm. have done like completely unacknowledged mentorship, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, uh, from various levels of, you know, being ahead of me or, or even just adjacent to me, mm-hmm. um, and trying to replicate that, I think is, is, is what I, one of the things that I'm interested in. Yeah. And I feel like it's a, a struggle in the humanities because the collaborative nature of work isn't visible in the same way that it is for STEM, where like, of course, in STEM, you have a lab, there's like, there's formal structures where you get to collaborate with people. Papers have multiple authors. Of course, there's, there's hierarchies among those authors, but even though, I feel like humanities is trying to move more towards collaborative models. Nonetheless, like our publications usually have one name on them and then you can look to the acknowledgement section. So a lot of the knowledge that gets passed on in terms of like what type of support networks you need to get to that stage are not are much more ad hoc and less formal than we see in other fields. Um, but maybe so again, Bridget and I are um, on site at a conference, and maybe one way to finish off is, uh, would you like to say a little bit about any particular talks that you're looking forward to in the last couple of days, or oh, that you probably have to rush off to? No, I don't even know. Um, or are there's just ones that you've seen that you really liked and would like to give a shout out to. Um, I will. Uh, one of the, one one thing I'll put in a uh, is a plug for um, eight a.m. panels. Um, because yesterday I was a slog to get up for the 8 a.m. Uh, panel, uh, that, but was definitely, definitely worth it on, um, color conventions in the 19th century and the digital, digital age, some excellent papers about, um, extremely exciting work, um, coming out of University of Delaware and the color conventions project. Look it up. It's, uh. Um, something that makes me look forward to teaching in, in future mm. semesters um, to, to think about you know new ways I can incorporate people doing groundbreaking work in making early black um, print uh, and uh, uh, like digital culture um, and uh, you know the um, previously kind of un- untraceable information uh, about that available to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, one of the most exciting things for me about early African-American literature is that um, the courses I teach now um, and the work that I do was just not possible when I was uh, an undergraduate 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the materials weren't available. Um, and some of that has to do with technology, but some of that has to do with, like, edited collections of things, the way people are making, um, you know, uh, projects come to come together mm-hmm. um, you know the uh, you know the exciting work that people are doing to um, you know recover texts and and think about uh, what counts as a text uh, what counts as literature um, how what, what what methodologies can we use for um, for doing this work uh, available in new and exciting ways um, makes studying old dead things um, actually really, really exciting, Mm -hmm. um, because it's like an ever changing and ever, uh, ever interesting and and evolving field. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's been, I think, super exciting for me to just, um, you know, straight up learn about some things, Mm um, at a a conference that, that make me excited for future research projects and collaborations with other people. Like, um, I'm one of the conveners now for the just teach one early african-american print project making early african-american print um, texts uh, available in um, teachable pdf forms with Mm. introductions um, and uh, you know uh, other explanatory notes 
um, that uh, we can incorporate into classes that wasn't available before, mm-hmm. um, and you know, making you know uh, uh, things available for one another. Uh, teaching um, is like another form of this scholar, this like scholarly generosity mm-hmm. that you know we can all benefit from. Um, you know, this exciting work of in in, in which people of my generation can change a field mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, that like we are in a position because of the work that people, the generation ahead of us did to also make contributions mm-hmm. to this field and how it's going to shake out over the next couple of decades. Um, and, and I think in, in conversations with people on that panel and others, you know, we recognize like that, um, you know, like the last two generations of early Black Studies scholars have set us up to, like, not only with their scholarship that we have, but also to continue to um, develop methodologies that continues their work, mm-hmm. and you know, the kind of propelling of this of this field for the next next couple of decades, and that's like um, a kind of immense generosity that sparks excitement in. Um, you know, in, in uh, academic research and teaching and pedagogy and in these conversations that um, I wouldn't have thought was possible in yeah. the field. And I think, you know, that that kind of work, and I feel this way too about the work that you do uh, in you. like Asian American studies and 19th century uh, American studies that like I will, I, I know that there will be a moment, you know, in the future where, you know, I can say like, oh yeah, no, I know Danielle and she, <laughs> you know, has made some of these things, you know, possible and opened up our field in, in new and interesting ways that, um, you know, that weren't possible mm-hmm. for somebody 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like the, the, the ways of those ways of thinking that, that you're bringing to the table and, you know, and, and, you know, and also in terms of like public scholarship and, in the, in these kinds of connections and making, you know, the different kinds of labor that you do mm-hmm. feels visible to others mm-hmm. and is encouraging. I think that's that's the kind of thing that makes conferences really really worthwhile because you get to see the confluence of people who have been doing these collaborative kind of mm-hmm. kind of kind yes. of work come physically together in the same yeah, place. It's like, we, this is like sort of conferencing at, at its best. This, the sense of the discipline not being as a, a static system but like as a living collaboration that's participatory that's dynamic um this is my first asa and i will not be the last this has been a fantastic experience for me uh so we do have panels we have to rush off to so thank you so much bridget for taking time after went to the minority scholars uh, meeting uh, breakfast this morning which is also fantastic um so thanks for listening and take care uh you can follow us on soundcloud itunes wherever you get your podcast also check us out on facebook and twitter take care and thanks a lot bridget for joining me thank you so much sign for having me hey okay.